This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we'll talk about the Olympics maybe getting canceled. We'll give you some at-home tips for things to do and watch while everyone is self-distancing slash quarantining. We'll also talk to a couple of guests today. We'll speak with Derek Thompson. He is a writer, a staff writer for The Atlantic. Plus, we'll speak with Dean Thomas. He has left ATT for the first time in 18 years to strike out on his own. Why is he doing it? What does it mean? And uh, everything else in between. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, by the way, I keep getting emails from you guys or, or DMs on Instagram. You can follow me there, Luke Thomas News. I get DM, DMs now from our international listeners because we have a whole lot more of them now as a result of the podcast from Ireland and New Zealand, plenty from Australia as well. So uh, big shouts to all the folks in the rest of the English-speaking world and everyone else too, but from the for just this moment, Big shouts to everyone in the UK, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, uh, any other place that I'm not thinking about that have uh, downloaded the podcast and now have access to it, who have written to me nice things saying, wow, it's really great. We can finally get your show over here on this part of the world. I would agree. I would strongly agree. Kind of sucks you're getting it in this format (laughs) to start. Uh, This is not normally how it sounds, but we're doing our best to move along just the same. And of course, don't forget Derek Thompson joins us here pretty soon to talk about the uh, effect that this whole coronavirus shutdown will have on restaurants and what restaurants mean to the American economy and so forth. All right, very good. Uh, Let me talk about the Olympics, if I can. The Olympics appear to have uh, Dana White-ism, that they believe they can just keep on trucking and it doesn't really matter what's happening in the wider world around them, that you know what, we're just going to do what we always do, put our heads in the sand, that sort of a thing. And, you know, understand what's happening around the world. Yes, of course, the, you know, maybe the great global pandemic of the century is currently hitting us. And on top of that, there's going to be a major economic contraction. It's not just happening in this country. It's happening all over. Countries like Italy, Spain, France, the United States, Canada to a degree, um, Japan, um, even to an extent China, South Korea, and this is going to be in many other places as well, have shut down their borders to to some extent, restricted travel, um, you know, eliminated any kind of large gatherings, told people that they can't run gyms, restaurants, bars. I mean, you name it, right? Tourism has been shut down. Gyms have been shut down. Theaters have been shut down. Food stores have been shut down. Everything except essential services, grocery stores, banks, pharmacies, gas stations. That sorts of thing. Well, what does that do? Well, among a number of other problems, it causes a, or it could cause, obviously we hope it doesn't come to this, this would be devastating, but certainly at a bare minimum, even with a protection from the federal government to assist everybody, it slows every bit of economic activity down. So athletes who train for the Olympics are having trouble training. Um, It's hard to get to places. It is hard to have any money coming in for most ordinary folks, which means if you were planning on attending the Tokyo Olympics in 2020, you now might want to reconsider that even if you could get into the country because do you now have the disposable income to go do all of that? You can see how all of these various problems tie into one another. So what does it have to do with the current situation? 
related to the ongoing attempt by the IOC to put this on. Well, they are now reconsidering things. So over the weekend, the Canadian government basically said, we don't care, uh, International Olympic Committee, if you're going to have the Olympics, we're not sending anybody. Quote, this is not solely about the athlete health. It is about public health, said the Canadian Olympic Committee in a statement, which called for a postponement of the Olympic Games. Quote, with COVID-19 and the associated risks, it is not safe for our athletes and the health and safety of their families and the broader Canadian community for athletes to continue training towards these games. In fact, it runs counter to the public health advice which we urge all Canadians to follow, end quote. Now, the statement was longer than that, but that's the relevant passage. I have many reactions to this. The first is, can you just listen to what this group is saying about an event that is not supposed to take place until the summer and contrast that with how various promoters, not merely the UFC, but various promoters inside combat sports have acted and discussed Right, where you have this wanton neglect and outright irresponsibility just utterly embraced inside mixed martial arts. Here, and, uh, by the way, about events in a time and place where the outbreak won't be as bad as it will be by potentially then. It could be much worse by then. Now saying it, the time is to pull back, and not merely for the athlete's health, but about everybody else as well. That is what you call responsible Sports organizational stewardship. That is what you call doing the right thing. You folks want to ask, what does it look like? It looks like that. Shouts to the Canadian Olympic Committee for getting this one right now. You might ask, well, where's the U.S. Olympic Committee? To my knowledge, they have not weighed in, at least not publicly. But the organization that regulates uh, track and field has spoken out, as has USA Swimming. They have specifically called either for a, uh, well, not a cancellation, but I think a postponement. Because um, you might be asking, well, okay, well, let's say the International Olympic Committee gets behind it, the idea of postponing, which, you know, I recognize these are more difficult decisions than I'm giving them credit. But if they did it, if they were to suggest that they couldn't go forward, like, when do you do it? And the answer is next summer. Because even if you can get back to normal life by, let's say, June or July, right? Maybe before, but let's just say. Where, okay, now we can freely go train and there's treatment out there and blah, blah, blah. Like whatever the situation might be. Economic and otherwise. The problem is you would have to delay the games at that point until fall, maybe winter. But you can't do that because it's the Summer Olympics. And on top of that, because, you know, you have to have volleyball outside. You have to have all these kinds of activities outside. Tokyo in the winter would be cold. And then on top of that, if you were playing basketball, you'd be in maybe the swing of the NBA season. So now that you allow professional athletes because you've rejected amateurism in all its entirety, and you had professional basketball players who would not be eligible to compete because they'd have to play for their leagues, now where are you? Right, you couldn't do it. You have to just put it now. It's been on even years, right? Uh, 80, 84, 88, 92, 96, so, and so on. Now it would have to be on odd. It would have to be 2021, 2025, 2029, which kind of sucks because there was a certain, I don't know, I also felt like there was a degree of 
certain simplicity around it. And by the way, it wouldn't be the only one like that. You'd have to delay Copa America, right? The big soccer tournament um, in uh, the all the South American nations, Brazil versus Argentina versus Chile versus whoever. That would have to go, I think, another year behind because you just can't push it to a later part where you're now interfering with the normal course of professional athletics, which also have to worry about themselves uh, and are probably going to get priority given that they pay in the way that they do. So, you know, look, I don't present this to you to be an easy situation to figure out that everyone's got it all simplified and it's no big deal. But I have to tell you, I was so heartened by the Canadian response here. I found it so admirable that they 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 took the initiative of saying, if you go forward, we're not going to take a part. Not because any government uh, or any other entity is telling us to, but because we are taking the proactive measure of making this happen by our own volition because we believe it's right. And more importantly, not merely for our athletes who train, of course, but that would be a very obvious concern, but about how their health and what the risks they might run in trying to keep this up might then do for ordinary Canadian citizenry. It's thinking big picture. It's taking proactive behavior. It's listening to public health officials. And it's smart and it's ethical and it's the right call. And this is for an event that won't take place for months, if it takes place at all. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about responsible sports organizational behavior. A lot of folks are asking, what do you want them to do? What do you want the UFC to say? That, that, that there's no real way to train in an effective manner, given the current conditions. There's no real way to, um, uh, stage an event under the current conditions. And that even if, uh, or rather it's not merely a matter of the public health, excuse me, it's not merely a matter of the private athlete health, although that is obviously a predominant concern as well but about the risks you run and having to fly them all over the place and having to train with other people and having to do the kinds of things that they have to do in order to compete at an athletic event during this crisis. Moreover, the Olympic event, if it took place, would probably be somewhere towards the end of the first outbreak or whatever you want to call it. In other words, it might be a healing moment for the world if you, if you want to believe the rhetoric. They're not staging it in the middle of a growth period, which is the, what the UFC has been trying to do with UFC 249. And so it's just utterly different language, utterly different posture, but it just goes to show there are some responsible stakeholders out here. It does exist. Some people practice responsible actions, yes, but the things that they ostensibly verbally um, preach, right? They don't just say, hey, we really care about first responders and the people at the grocery store and uh, everything else. We want to do more than that. We want to live by our values. Not so easy to do. The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. 
And joining me now on the hotline is a man you know from many different walks in uh, the side of the MMA world. Former UFC fighter, black belt in jiu-jitsu, trainer to the stars. He's been in the news recently, and I wanted to catch up with him about it. It is Dean Thomas. Hi, Dean. Hey, what's up, man? How are you? Doing quite well. Dean, how are you keeping busy these days, uh, such as you can uh, sitting at home? Uh, Well, you know, I've been sneak training. I got a couple people we've been sneaking around training, staying busy, so it's all good. You know, it's funny. I'm, but I'm but listen, I'm being responsible. I'm not being around big crowds and you know, spreading germs. I'm just keeping it nice and low key. All right, very good. Now, uh, well, you talked a few years ago, and maybe I misunderstood you back then, but it sounded to me like maybe one or two years ago, you were headed in a different direction outside of MMA. This news recently that you were sort of forming your own, um, going on your own as a trainer sounds to me the opposite of that. So is it true that a couple of years ago you were thinking about doing different stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I was always thinking about doing different stuff in terms of like, you know, just trying to branch off and do anything, whether it be in entertainment, acting, or even buying real estate, you know, but, um, uh, but MMA is, is part of my life. I mean, it's something I did my entire life. So it's, it's, I can't give up on it that easily. So I'm always going to be, and I love, I love solving puzzles, you know, so I love working with fighters and solving puzzles. So I'm never going to give up on the MMA aspect of my life. All right, so the news, as I indicated, was that you were sort of leaving the, uh, uh, I should say, the official ATT designation and going on your own. So what precipitated this, and what's the what's the idea behind the move? Um, you know, the thing is, I wanted to be able to, I'm an entrepreneur, and I, I kind of think like that. And, I, and it's not that I'm not a team player. It's just I wanted to be able to do things my way all the time. and. You know, if I have a, a fighter that I want to work with, I want to be able to work with that fighter the way I want to work with him, and and that's just that's just how I want to do. You know, if I if I'm working with Greg Hardy, you know, once or twice a week, and then I go to his fight and I corner him and he wins, and everybody's like, "Oh, you're such a great coach." But really, I've worked with this guy twice a week. I didn't really, you know, put as much effort and energy into a, into the guys that I'm wanting to. And I want to. I want to be responsible when they win. I want to be responsible when they lose so that I can go back and fix it. But currently, the way I'm operating, it's like, you know, I work with a guy for, you know, two weeks. He goes and fights. And it's just like I, I done missed out on the opportunities to train with the guys that I really need to train with. It's just, I don't know. I just wanted to be able to do things on my own. So, I, okay, that makes sense to do and give you a freedom to work with fighters who would not be under the ATT designation. But I guess I don't understand. Help me, help me fill in the blank here for me. Why can you only work with, and you're using Greg Hardy as an example. I'm just going to use that as an example as well. Why is it you can only work with them for, let's say, two days a week versus more? What's the, what's the obstacle there? The obstacle is just, you know, I have too many people that I'm working with. I mean, I can work with everybody every day, but that would kill me. So, you know, the the fact that if I have, like, all these people that I'm working with, I, I can't really spread myself out that thin. So I kind of really only want to work with the fighters that I want to work with and invest in, that I believe in, that, that I feel is, you know, worthy of, of my time. I see. So you're getting... And it's, and it's not, go ahead. And it's, not, and it's not fair to Dan Lambert to go, all right, Dan, I'm going to come in and only work with these guys and just leave, you know, the rest of these guys, you know sitting there while I work with the people I want to work with. It's not fair to get paid to do that. So for me, I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to run off and, and do my own thing and give me some more flexibility and freedom to do what it is that I want to do. 
Now, if somebody who's at ATT and is with you in the, I mean, are you going to stay in the Coconut Creek area? Well, I don't even live down there. Like, I was driving anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half to get there every day. So it's actually a lot less uh, stressful in my life just getting rid of that drive. So, because I don't even live down in Coconut Creek, I live in West Palm Beach, which is 45 minutes away. So, what does that mean? You're going to have your own facility there that people will come to you? Uh, possibly. I'm. I'm not going to open my own thing right now. I got a couple of spots that I can use in order to train people. I'm not going to open my own place. But what I'm really looking to do in the future is just work with a few select fighters and you know help them in camp if they need it or whatever, consult fighters or whatever I need to do to make guys better. But I'm not looking to open my own place, my own facility and and work with guys that way. Got it. I see. So this is about doing, uh, so this case, it's fair to say less is more. Is that the idea? Yeah, less is more. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, like not everybody's going to be a champion and it, it makes no sense for me to work with 40 different people to get the results that I'm getting when I can work with, four people and get better results out of four people got it that makes sense dean thomas joins us here on the luke thomas show now uh, what is your view about what i mean here's the thing we're all so speculative no one knows when this thing is going to be over do you think because someone asked me this is ufc going to rebook woodley versus edwards you think they just might move on to something else by then i think they're gonna move on to something else by then i hope they do like who doesn't want to see woodley versus colby um right? yeah i guess relative uh, here, here i'll say this i thought i think I'm, I thought the Edwards fight would be tougher, to be honest, in certain ways, right? I mean, he's a hard guy to fight. He is, and it probably is tougher, so that makes it even more attractive for us. <laughs> um, uh, how, how was he looking in camp? Because he had that long layoff, you know, like after the Kamaru fight, he kind of, you know, he did his, I saw him on Sway and then taking his time, and he seemed by the time this week rolled around to be absolutely locked on, but he had some time off there, didn't he? Yeah, he had a lot of time. I mean, it was a, a year at least. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, losing the belt, you know, going through stuff like he went through a divorce and like he had a lot of stuff that he was going through prior to the fight. And then after the fight, all that stuff lingered. He had a lot of stuff going on. So I think the time off actually helped him. But going into this fight, like we were locked in. We were we, we went to Atlanta to do the camp. He did half of it in Thailand. Then we went to Atlanta. And, you know, we cut out a lot of distractions. I mean, there was no no rap sessions and, you know, no no going out. It was just straight. We're going to train. We're going to train. We're going to train. And that's what we did. And so we were locked in. We were, we were incredibly focused for this fight. What was in Atlanta? Oh, was it uh, was it um, the the uh, the, t- the Thai trainer there? Uh, forget his name. Yeah, yeah. And, his Anto? name is Manu. Yeah, Manu. Manu yeah. Yeah, Manu, and then Jukal is there, the, the uh, American top team Atlanta with Jukal and, and the Lima brothers, Will Brooks and uh, and uh, Tony Martin. So, I mean, we've got good training there. But, um, but yeah, and we were focused, man. We were just going from the Airbnb to the gym, and that was all we did. So I was, I was happy with the training. It kind of sucks that he didn't get a, a chance to showcase his skills. But, you know, he's not going to lose it. And the good news is that he's still training now in St. Louis. And it's like, yo, as soon as um, this is over, we're going to get right back in camp. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, how did he get hooked up with uh, the Atlanta crew there? Was it through the Jukau or through you or some other way? No, it was through him. I think he was he was in Atlanta doing doing something. You know, he had some business in Atlanta and stopped over there at Jukau's to train. And then he 
met Manu and then it just got hooked up. Well, you know, Tyron's a personable guy and he utilizes all his resources and he networks like no other man. So when he meets somebody, he's trying to make business with you. So, um, and it worked out. I mean, Atlanta is probably my favorite place that we've trained. I love Milwaukee. I love Duke's gym. But in terms of like cities and just convenience, I love the way we had to set up in Atlanta. So is that something you guys might do again? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was actually considering, you know, the next time we do a camp is to bring the fighters that I am working with, all of us out to Atlanta and just all have a camp out there. That's interesting. Atlanta is sort of like this hidden little gem inside MMA. You see some good fighters on occasion come out. The Lima brothers uh, yeah. are out of there as well, correct? Yeah, the Lima brothers are out of there. Rafael Asuncel is out of there. Like I said, Will Brooks just moved up there. Tony Martin lives there. So they got a they got a nice squad of fighters in Atlanta, and it's such a hidden little place. And it's everything is cheap there. Like it's it's cheap to get an Airbnb there. It's a great spot. In terms of Tyron, you know, what is realistically achievable in this last chapter? If he had beaten Leon Edwards, certainly it puts him back in the hunt. But there's a bit of a logjam up there where Kamara's supposed to fight Jorge, but we don't know when. Uh, Colby is kind of sitting on ice, I guess, with the time being. Um, and he's certainly in the mix there, but it's not like if he had, well, if he had lost to Leon, that would have been devastating. But let's say he had won, it still would have been a bit of, bit of a cue there. What does he, what, what does he envision for the next three fights? Well, yeah, and you're right about that because you would think that they would want, you know, after he, you know, he defended that belt four times. You would think that they would give him an opportunity to get it back. But I think you're right. Like, they're going to try to make it hard for him. So he would have needed to knock Leon Edwards, like, head into the third row. And that's what we were planning on doing. And, like, that's where we're just, we always try to think positively. Like, listen, you're going to go knock this guy out, and then they're going to be forced to give you a title shot. That was our best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is that, you know, he loses, obviously. The next worst-case scenario is that he wins a boring decision, and then they just, you know, have him fight Gunnar Nelson or somebody. So, I mean, we just, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that could happen, but we're always thinking best-case scenario, and that's, you know, we're just going to go out there and knock this guy's head off in, in the first three minutes, and then that's going to be a wrap. They're going to be forced to give him a title shot. Yeah, because Edwards is one of these guys where when you lose, you lose sort of, it's like Chinese water torture, right? Where it's like yeah. slow and painful and and not it, it it just happens inexorably over time. It's a bad way to lose. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's such a good fighter. Like I was watching him, and when, when I was done, I said, "Wow." I mean, I, I studied him. I said, "He's like, it's like watching a combination of me and Eve Edwards, but the the new version of us." You know. So I knew like he's a really good fighter. He's really slick and he's really good at what he does. So. It wasn't going to be an easy fight. I, I, I know that much. It's not going to be an easy fight, but Tyron is such a dynamic guy that he can make fights that don't that are not supposed to be easy. He can finish them easily. So, and the other part, that, yeah, I wanted to ask you about this. Like, how did you end up at ATT of all places? You've been there what eighteen years? How did yeah, you How did you get started years. there? Um, I was freelancing. I had a freelance gym in Orlando, the first MMA gym in Orlando, like Seth Petrozelli trained there, you know, Richie Crunkleton. I mean, we had a squad of Paul Rodriguez. We had a squad over there. And but the Orlando scene, like it's different now because now like Jocker Ray, Mike Perry, all them trained there. But back then, all these guys like to do was party. So Alex Davis, I, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Davis. He does the, um, translations for all the brazilian fighters sure. and managers a bunch of fighters yep well he had his spot in fort lauderdale and was like hey man you you look serious like you're like you're serious about your career you should consider moving down here we're starting a new team called american top team and next thing you know they introduced me to dan lambert this was back in 2001 
and I've moved down and I've been there ever since. Are you natively from Florida? I'm natively from Delaware. Delaware? Yeah. How how did you end up in Orlando from Delaware, Dean Thomas? Well, <laughs> it's even worse. I ended up in, in Port St. Lucie, Florida from Delaware. How did you do and, that? Uh, my mother, she just when she moved away from Delaware, she yeah. picked, of all places, Port St. Lucie, Florida. And so then as you grew up, you just found better spots in Florida, it sounds like. Yeah, I just, yeah, I found better, more, closer spots. I found better places to live in Florida. Wow. You, I, you and Joe Biden, the two greats from Delaware, huh? Ain't that the truth? There's nothing else from <laughs> Delaware except for like me, Joe Biden, and Delano DeShields. Oh, that's right. Him too. I forgot about <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, all right. Well, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I did see that ATT put in this sort of gag rule where unless you had a bout agreement with one another, um, you know, this was not a thing they wanted to foster in terms of trash talk. I recognize now you're moving on. Still, I would love to get your perspective on this. It seems like not merely good policy. It seems like like a must to have that kind of a thing, given the business model that they run, no? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's long overdue. And um, we should have had that policy a long time ago. There's, the, I mean, it's just it's too easy for guys to come in and, and to give them that type of leniency to say, you know, you come in as long as you don't, you know, argue in the gym, you can do what you want outside of the gym. And, and that's not really conducive to a good working environment. And, and you saw what happened. So I think it was long overdue. And I'm glad that they did it because I think it should ease some tension with some guys in the gym. And just make, I mean, you can't, like part of what ATT does, or any good gym is recruit, right? I mean, how, how many good fighters naturally live in Coconut Creek, Florida, or the surrounding area. Not that many, but people come yeah, there. None. <laughs> none. Like right. nobody's like from there. So, you know, we recruit and and I think that's a, a bad look on our part. Like a lot of guys might not want to come if they know that, you know, you, you gotta you're gonna come down and you gotta hear this guy talking trash about you. Like, oh, what do I wanna go to? That's not a real the environment that I wanna be in. So I'm glad I'm glad that Dan implemented that. I think that's gonna be very good for the team. Just as a personal uh, matter, do you wanna see Jorge and Colby fight? Well, here's what I mean. Um Given how you probably know that they match up, is that something that interests you in a professional capacity? Not necessarily how they match up, but I would love to just see what would happen if they do fight because of the bad blood and and how that would turn out. And and more so even the aftermath, because I would have to assume that, like, let's say I think Jorge wins that fight, but let's say he doesn't. I, I think he beats him up in the parking lot. So, like, to me, that interests me. Hmm. I see. Um, all right. Well, before we get out of here, I'm sort of asking everyone about this. Um, you know, none of us are epidemiologists. So we are really just speculating here into the wild. Do you have a sense about when this is all going to return to normal? I, again, I'm a positive person. I'm thinking I'm hoping another two weeks. I mean, it won't be normal because I think I think the economy will be crippled for a while. But in terms of like being able to get out and get around, I'm hoping another two weeks to a month. That's what I'm hoping. You know, they start bringing things back. You know, the UFC, hopefully the UFC gets back on track. I know Dana right now is probably working overnight to, to find a venue for two UFC 249, but um, I'm hoping all this stuff comes back within the next two weeks to a month. Oh, and before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. I saw you indicate on Twitter, what is this project you're working on where you're combining all your NHB, jiu-jitsu, MMA knowledge? Into, like, what is this project that you have and how can we get a hold of it? Ah, it's just another, um, you know, kind of an online academy thing that I'm doing, except, you know, very uh, 
intensive and extensive of all my knowledge in terms of, you know, I'm going to cover mentality, you know, training, not just technique, you know, game planning, coaching. I'm covering everything I know about MMA to put into this. And when does it go live? Uh, probably not for another two months or so. Okay, so we got some time. All right. Yeah, well, we got time. We got time. We got time. Before that launches, give me a Dean Thomas, we'll end on this quarantine recommendation. TV series, book, uh, movie, a time to spend the, the, your time or way to spend your time. What do you got for us? What do I got? So what am I doing right now? I'm watching, I'm watching Peaky Blinders. <laughs> yeah, I love is, that show. Is it good? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, Peaky Blinders. And it's great. on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Bro, have you seen Tiger King yet? No, what is that? It's the it's the reality series about these people who own tigers and how they all beef with each other. Oh, no kidding. Bro, it is bananas. Bananas, bananas, bananas. Really? You and got, what are these yeah, people yeah. It's on Netflix as well. You can watch the whole thing there. It's a brand new series and it's out now. It's a reality like series. And basically, uh-huh. you can imagine, dude, these people that own tiger parks, they're not normal, right? Like, they're weirdos. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Bro, they got, they got real beef with each other, like going to jail beef. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah. that. You got to check so, it out. But here's, here's the thing, though, Luke. If you're not watching that and you're not watching Tiger Kings, I want you to go back and watch all the episodes of Dana White looking for a fight, especially the episodes that I'm in. All right, there you can do it. Those are free on YouTube. Easy to free get. On YouTube. Yeah, get to uh, those. Dean, congratulations on all your success. Stay safe, you, stay buddy. indoors, and uh, hope to see you when all of this you know, goes away. Absolutely, my friend. You too, my man. Take care, Dean. Thank you so much. All right. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music plus sports, comedy, talk, and news. They have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM.com busted to see offer details and to subscribe. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. Luke Thomas Show, welcome back. Hope you're doing well. Keep those emails coming. By the way, voicemail or written mail. Either way, we'll take them. Luke Thomas Show at gmail.com. And of course, keep sending us tweets. How are you living through this self? People keep calling this quarantine. For some people, it's quarantined. But if you're just if you're just practicing social distancing and you're working from home, understand that's not quarantining. That's just, just staying indoors. <laughs> That's not actually like, oh, the bars are shut down in my town. Right. That's not, that's not quarantining. That's something else entirely. But okay. Different conversation for a different time. Now, speaking of being indoors, I want to give you a bit of a recommendation if I can. You guys know that I love to read. Yes. And now I love to play Mortal Kombat 11, which I suck at. But I also like to do... Uh, some TV watching. I like to watch some movies. I saw Cobb just very, very quickly, very quickly. Cop on here if you can. I know he's busy editing the show a little bit. You may not be able to hear me. If you can for a second, Cobb, have you seen 1917, the movie? I have not yet, no. I watched it last night. You want to give you the, the, the Luke Thomas uh, review here very quickly? You know, how, oh, you know, please you, do, sir. You know how that like uh, it used to be Siskel and Ebert or Ebert and Roper used to have two thumbs up, or like you could give it like uh, what would be mine? Like five what? 
four stars, three stars. Like, instead of stars, what would mine be? Books or like insults or be the size meter. <laughs> Sized meter. All right. Uh, 1917, I'd give it a four on the Seist meter. I had a conversation with this about my other morning combat host, Brian Campbell of CBS Sports. He was saying, oh my God, it's the best war movie ever made. I'm like, it might be. I mean, understand something. It's a good movie. It's great. It's a great. Here, how about that? It's a great movie. And the cinematography is absolutely brilliant. Here's one thing that they did. I'm not spoiling it for you because you have to live through it to really appreciate it. it the movie is basically two hours, right? They split it down the middle, so it's an hour and an hour. And for that first hour, it's a single shot. Now, the scenes change, but the camera follows the actors the entire time. It just moves the entire time. Crazy. It does it for an hour straight, two different times, which is just a phenomenal feat of uh, movie making. That being said, there were some parts about it I didn't like. I thought the screenplay wasn't all that interesting. And it was a little bit too like war romantic for me. Nevertheless, if you've not seen 1917, you can get it on YouTube, you can get it on Fandango Now, you can get it anywhere you want to get it, okay? So that's the first recommendation. But here's my real recommendation. Uh, most of us have Netflix or access to a Netflix account or whatever. Are y'all watching Tiger King uh, on Netflix? It's a true life, I, I guess you'd call it, crime docu-series? I, I guess that's what it would be. Let me give you the pitch on this one. Who are some of the weirdest people you know? And I'm not saying bad people necessarily, but weird, right? I mean, not weird in the sense of socially isolated. Far from it. They might be quite gregarious, but just weird. I would say animal people, right? And not people who own dogs or people who own cats, even other exotic pets per se, but people who own lots of them. You ever notice that? You have people who own like 10 dogs. They're always kind of a little off. You already know about the cultural shaming for cat ladies, right? They're just not, again, that isn't to say they're necessarily bad, but they're just not, they're not, they bond with animals so much, I think they lose some of their bond and their ability to socialize normally with the rest of humanity, or it could be the opposite that because they can't socialize with them as normal, they then pour their energies into animals. I, I, I don't know. That's for psychologists and animal experts to tell me about, but uh, you know, anecdotally, anytime you've met someone who's like, I've got three ferrets, a parakeet and seven, an uh, you know, bears. It's like, yep, you're not the homecoming King, are you? So there's that. Now, what is tiger King about? Imagine a world, it's a real world, imagine a world where people who own big cat farms, they might be zoos, but they also breed them, which is this whole ethical lapse, but imagine that. Can you imagine how crazy and eccentric these people might be, right? Do you know anyone who owns 200 tigers, right? Can you imagine what they would be like if they did? They would be a little bit unusual. And it follows this one dude who calls himself Joe Exotic, who, how do I explain this? He is a uh, a gay cowboy tiger farm owner who beefs with crazy cat lady tiger farm owner. 
And that's what the show is about. And it gets real. And I'm not spoiling this for you because they kind of tease it in the opening ad. It ends up with Joe Exotic going to prison. So it starts years ago and then builds up to modern times about how they got here. If you think me telling you that a... Oh, by the way, I left it a detail. That a gay polygamist, tiger farm-owning, gun-toting redneck from Oklahoma, because that's what he is, uh, is eccentric and weird, that doesn't do any justice to the story whatsoever. It is the most outrageous, bat-ass crazy thing in terms of a series I've ever seen on any major platform ever. I thought 90 Day Fiance were these, you know, American dudes bringing in these Latin women from Brazil and then getting their lives just completely smashed because they didn't know what the hell they were doing or dudes trying to move to like the middle of nowhere for 90 Day Fiance and all the crazy. I thought that was the craziness thing. Uh, craziest thing, excuse me. Uh, and that is still crazy. That's got nothing. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing on Tiger King. Tiger King is truly the apex of human eccentricity. The only thing different would be Gigi Allen doing what he did on stage, which is something I don't even want to repeat on on air. And that was just a one-time thing. Tiger King. I am, let's see, I think I'm three episodes deep. And from episodes one and two, you just, you there's just no turning back at this point. None. You know, and, and, oh, Luke, do you see people getting eaten by tigers? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Do you see people discharging firearms and or uh, bombs? Yes, you do. Do you see polygamist weddings? Yes, you do. Do you see, <laughs> do you see uh, former drug kingpins turn to tiger farming? Yes, you do. Do you see people, uh, you know, I mean, wh- whatever level of human weirdness that you'd never see in your ordinary life, they packed it all into this show. It's about it's about the treatment of animals. It's about our, re- our lack of regulation around them. It's about uh, cults. It's about polygamy. It's about uh, sexual orientation. It's about squabbles. It's about business. It's ab- I mean, it's about everything on its most weird version of itself. Um, so Tiger King. Tiger King on Netflix, bro, that is the one to go to if you've not already done it. The Luke Thomas Show is your one-stop destination for MMA. If you're in a UFC title fight and you get finished in the first round, yo, you lost. Sports. I cheer for loser teams. As well as pop culture and entertainment. No matter what Star Wars comes out, I'll just find a way to like it. No. The Luke Thomas Show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on your home for combat sports. Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 and the Sirius XM app. Now included free for most subscribers. And joining me now now on the hotline is Derek Thompson, who is a staff writer for The Atlantic. He also is the author of the book Hitmakers and the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Crazy Genius. Derek, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? Good, Derek. I, I want to uh, get to this piece you wrote on America's Restaurants. But before we do, there is what I would call somewhat breaking news relative to the time of this conversation, which is that Senator Rand Paul, uh, had, I believe of Kentucky, has tested positive for COVID-19. Now, he says he is asymptomatic, but he was found in the gym, the Senate gym this morning. I wonder what your reaction is to the totality of that news. 
My reaction to Salah news must begin with the human perspective, which is that uh, he's sick, and I hope he gets better. And I hope he was not particularly contagious uh, when he was lifting weights and running on the treadmill and swimming in the pool. That said, this is ludicrously irresponsible uh, and horrifyingly inconsiderate for someone who knew that they were being tested for coronavirus, who had reason to believe that they were a plausible candidate for testing positive for coronavirus, for someone like that to go to the gym, that's, I mean, is is wild. I mean, I don't know about the gyms around where you live in D.C. All the gyms around where I live in D.C. have been shuttered. I believe that it is illegal for private citizens to go to the gym in D.C. And here is a senator, a public representative of the people going to a publicly funded gym, maybe the only gym in Washington, D.C., perhaps the only gym on the, in, you know, in, within a 300-mile radius of us that's open, and he may have spread the virus not only to senators, but maybe to aides, to staffers. Um, it's really dispiriting. And, you know, I, I, again, want to return to the fact that I hope he's all right. I hope he's remains asymptomatic and that he either didn't pass this along with the people that he has infected turn out okay. But, I mean, it, it just goes to show that we cannot afford to act like libertarians during a pandemic. <laughs> We have to, even if Rand Paul is, in fact, and he is the most famous libertarian in the Senate, we have to think of our actions in a socialized manner because we are all potential vectors of an extremely contagious virus that is deathly to many, many people. Uh, the other component here, and I'll get to the piece he wrote in a minute, uh, is that, as you know, there are rules about quorum and then how many people have to be there for a vote. But interestingly, the, uh, to my knowledge, neither the House nor the Senate have any mechanisms built in for voting remotely. Uh, and there's good reasons for that. But now we're in a situation where if, if he has spread this to other members and they literally cannot be there to vote on important pieces of legislation, it's a fairly frightening problem, is it not? It sure is fairly frightening. I would say, you know, the government is a 19th century or an institute, an 18th century institution in a 21st century economy. Every other white collared worker whose job is effectively to discuss, collaborate on and finalize pieces of public uh, pieces of, of media are working remotely at the moment. That's certainly what The Atlantic is doing. That's what news organizations across the country are doing. That is, in many ways, the job of the Senate and the Congress. It is to propose, collaborate on, amend, and finalize pieces of legislation that eventually get their electronic or literal signature from the president. I don't understand why it's necessary to keep not only our representatives and our senators, who are, by the way, right in the crosshairs of uh, this virus's most deathly demographic. I mean, this virus is maybe 20 to 30 times more mortal for people over the age of 70 than it is for people under the age of 30. But also they have staffers. They have you know, low paid staffers who are uh, working really, really hard, often I think under a really anxious conditions. And I hope they're all right. And I hope that they're allowed to work uh, remotely in, in the future as well. You wrote a great piece here for The Atlantic. We will tweet it out. It's uh, called America's Restaurants Will Need a Miracle. Funny story, I suppose. My family had owned a restaurant for the last 15, 20 years, and they had a planned shutdown two years in effect literally this past weekend. That's I'm not exaggerating it. Wow. I'm making it up. Yeah, right on time. Um, and so they were kind of sad about it until this whole thing hit, and they have been dismayed, not for themselves, but knowing how important restaurants are to the American economy and what it all means. Let's actually take a broader view here that you detail in the piece. 
how big is the restaurant sector and how important is it is it to the American economy, both in terms of its size and to the, uh, the size of the workforce? Sure. So the broadest picture that I can paint begins with this simple fact, which is that restaurants have never been more important to the U.S. economy or to American culture than they are right now. Uh, Americans in 2015, for the first time ever, started spending more money in restaurants than at grocery stores. Uh, 30 years ago, manufacturing employed three times as many people as the food services industry. Now they're tied. Restaurants in many ways are literally the new factories. Uh, Food preparation and food service jobs account for one in 10 workers in states like Nevada, Hawaii, Florida. And then finally, you know, I have lived in D.C. for several years. I moved to New York for seven years and then just moved back to Washington, D.C. And I cannot imagine what our streets, what the streets of these cities would look like without restaurants. And in fact, there's a stat that goes with this uh, uh, feeling as well, which is that in 2019, just last year, restaurants accounted for 40 percent, almost half of all new ground floor retail leases. Without restaurants, physical retail would disappear in America's largest, densest, richest cities. And so the concept that we might be living for six months or longer without dine-in restaurant service in America, it it is literally unthinkable. I I cannot imagine what America's streets look like, what American culture looks like, what the face of our cities look like without restaurants. To what extent, a two-part question here. One, how thin are the profit margins such that these uh, owners could potentially float themselves for any period? I mean, six months, of course, mm-hmm. no one in their right mind would assume you could do that. But how long is the runway, number one? And number two, to what extent are there conversion opportunities for takeout, curbside, that kind of thing? So those are two really good questions. The, to the first question, I don't have a really good answer One of the problems with providing a single good answer is that there's so many different kinds of restaurants. You've got, you know, your fine dining Michelin star restaurants on one end and you've got, uh, you know, chains for fast food on the other end. And in the middle, you've got everything from bakeries and fast casual like Sweetgreen and Chipotle to sort of casual dining like your Applebee's. You got really different profit margins across the sector. And depending on whether it's a mom and pop shop or a chain like McDonald's, you're also going to have differences there. But one thing you can say certainly for the restaurant business overall is that it is a very thin profit margin. And a lot of these places will go belly up if they don't get help in the next few weeks and months. The answer to the second question um, is that I think a lot of these restaurants are going to try to be innovative. You know, sometimes necessity can indeed be the mother of innovation. And here you see uh, restaurants in D.C. that used to be dine-ins. They become sort of drive-throughs or catering pickups. We've got a favorite uh, restaurant um, in Capitol Hill called Emily's, E-M-I-L-I-E apostrophe S, uh, that we went to several times with some friends. They shut down and became a uh, delivery, not a delivery service, but a takeaway business. So we just got uh, dinner from Emily's last night. We drove to Emily's. We put our gloves on. We walked in to Emily's, picked up dinner and two bottles of wine, 40% off, walked out, and then had a virtual dinner party with some of our friends mm. in New York City. So I think last night was in many ways, you know, I wasn't trying to... Um, you know, write a kind of uh, this is the way we live story uh, with, you know, the dinner party we had last night. We just wanted to see some friends. But this is the way we live now. You know, places that used to be dine-ins are now drive-throughs. Places that used to be
be, um, you know, uh, fast casual restaurants are now essentially delivery only. Um, and, you know, the dinner parties that we have are not shared over a table with friends. They're shared two tables separated by several hundred miles connected by FaceTime or Google Hangouts. So, so much has changed. And I do hope that people listening to this, um, you know, I know that a lot of them are going to be struggling and they can't just, you know, uh, they, they, they won't have a lot of a lot of savings to, to, to help people. But if you can, if you do have money to help people, reach out to those restaurants that are still offering takeaway and delivery, because uh, the couple hundred dollars that you spend there, uh, it could really, you know, help them make it maybe just the next week, maybe the week after until we have a more formal uh, industry wide bailout or relief passed by the federal government. Derek Thompson joins us here on the Luke Thomas show in terms of what has been the latest. And again, this could change hour to hour, day to day. But the the relief bill um, has been rumored to be around two billion. And this would, of course, encompass. Average I think consum- it means two trillion. Sorry, two trillion. What am I saying? Yes, I'm sorry. Um, I was the Larry Kudlow quote there. Um, so it, that would encompass not merely your average sort of low ra- uh, low wage uh, working class consumer. It could be small business. It could be large business. It would be the totality of the economy. The details are scant as I understand them, Derek. But from what you know, are you seeing things in there that give you some confidence? We can uh, we can push back this restaurant Armageddon. Yeah. It is, it is potentially a restaurant Armageddon, and I'm glad you put it that way. What gives me confidence is the number itself. Two trillion with a T is a really important number. Uh, Denmark, I just spoke to an economist in Denmark about that country's efforts uh, to uh, save themselves from the Great Depression, and uh, their equivalent bailout would be about $2.5 trillion. So to get into that range of two trillion is really important. I think you could see uh, an economic drop off in the second and third quarters of this year that's absolutely massive. And so you need something in the trillions to help people out. I imagine that two trillion is going to be divided among several different different uh, components. I think you're going to have some individual household relief, whether it's cash or unemployment benefits. I think the other part of it is going to be sort of uh, industry-specific relief, uh, whether it's you know interest-free loans um, or promises for the federal government to pay for fixed um, uh, expenses, whether that's rent or certain, con- certain other contract obligations. I think you want to have an individual component and you want to have a business component because they're both really important to look after. You've got individuals, whether they're you know freelancers or they're self-employed or they you know used to work for a restaurant. You want to make sure that you're helping them individually, but you also want to make sure that the entire small and medium-sized business landscape of the United States isn't completely wiped out by a tsunami. You want to make sure that, you know, people who live in New York and love their local restaurants don't wake up in nine months and they're all gone. You have to work with employers and companies directly, not just by bailing out individuals, sorry, not bailing out, helping individuals. Um, And so I'm really happy, A, about the number, B, about the fact that they're working with both individuals and businesses. But beyond that, I don't know enough about the details I'm going to hammer down to say, yes, this is a great bill or this is a very flawed bill, but it's spending a lot of money. And that's the most important thing. Um, this has nothing to do with your piece, but uh, I know you're a keen observer of American trends and developments. Is there any other sector in the American economy you have your eye on as one for potential change, either positive or negative? Hmm. So, you know, I'll give you two answers to that question. Uh, one answer from a big trend perspective is that the pandemic is an economic tax of nearly 90% or 100% on uh, crowds and on uh, the part of the economy that requires uh, hand to personal touch. And so it's going to be utterly punishing 
to any part of the economy that requires crowds or personal touch. On the crowd side, you've got, of course, restaurants, but you also have theaters, you've got baseball stadiums, you've got live sports in general, you've got theaters. Um, and then on the hand-to-hand uh, personal touch standpoint, you also have you know, masseuses and barbers um, and maybe dentists too, I think could probably be endangered. Um, so that's the terrible stuff. On the other hand, you know, the, the, the positive trend is that even as the high-touch economy is being strangulated, um, strangulated, I don't know if that's a word, strangled certainly is, <laughs> even though the high-touch economy is being strangled, the touchless economy is doing surprisingly well. Um, you know, I think you're going to have a lot of online orders. You're going to have a lot of online shopping. You're going to have certain consumer products that are designed for home bodies to be pretty successful, I think, because... Uh, that's all Americans are going to be for the next few months, certainly. We're all going to be homebodies. I just, for example, um, bought a, a pull-up bar uh, to sort of go over a, a door sill, if, if you can imagine. I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you've seen these and your listeners can, can I imagine. Ha- I have one. I have you one. have one. Okay, yep. great. Uh, I never would have bought a pull-up bar. It's kind of an ugly-looking um, contraption, but I absolutely need it because Equinox has been shut down and probably will be shut down for the next few months. Uh, so I got to get some pull-ups in and I got to get some physical exercise in. So you're, and, and I saw, by the way, that on Amazon, the pull-up bars were sold out and, and weights were sold out and all sorts of uh, personal uh, home gym equipment was sold out. So that's the touchless economy. That's online orders and online shipments. Um, and so certainly, you know, American spending isn't going to go to zero, but American spending on the high-touch economy might. Um, so where does that money go? It goes to the Texas economy. And then last but certainly not least, uh, I know that you tweet on occasion um, about sports. And mm, so yeah. let me just end here if I can. You had indicated about sports that's going to be sort of heavily affected. You're seeing them kind of fumble in the dark, although I appreciate the efforts. Like, for example, the Washington Wizards have no games, so they've been staging um, online NBA 2K games, <laughs> virtual games, which is not fun to watch, but you know, you certainly uh, appreciate the attempt. Nevertheless, I've been thinking about this, and you look at some of the projections that the owners have, for example, in the NBA, and they're thinking June, July return at the earliest, but even then, that could be for some of the smaller teams financially ruinous and there is no indication necessarily that everything will be back to normal even with no fans in attendance and when i say normal i mean a regular rotation of games um by that point so i guess i'll just ask you this i know this is wildly speculative but a part of me really feels this way if when everything returns to normal whenever that moment might be and we're now seeing the olympics might be delayed yeah. Are all the teams going to make it? Like, uh, what what pieces of this puzzle are not going to be here at the end, hmm. or is that just alarmist uh, discussion from people who are in panic mode? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I guess I haven't thought about the possibility that some teams wouldn't make it. Um, I suppose you're right. I mean, you know, I, I imagine that the net, the sort of average net worth of an NBA owner is somewhere in the billions of dollars. But that said, a lot of their net worth is going to be is going to have been wiped out because uh, the S&P 500 is down 30-40% and may drop further still. Um, and also you have the fact that they uh, that they might not be able to liquidate their assets in order to fund a team which obviously costs, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars a year, although I, I don't know exactly what the it costs to field a, a median NBA team. So, yeah, you you might need Sports specific bailouts too. I had, I guess, I hadn't quite thought of that. I do think they should probably. On the one hand, I want, I want to say that they, they shouldn't be at the front of the line. Um, you know, a, a restaurant that's a really important part of a 
uh, of a neighborhood sort of civic culture that operates at you know 0.5% profits. Um, that I'm more concerned about uh, its existence than I am about the existence of a um, of an association or a, a league that um, that is worth many billions of dollars. At the same time, um, I like you, like I'm sure many people listening to this, I think sports are just an utterly critical part of America's cultural landscape. I have missed them so deeply. In fact, I've thought really deeply about how important sports are and that importance has been made so clear to me in the last few weeks. Like every morning I typically wake up and I listen to sports podcasts. That's how I, uh, that's how I wake, that's how I make my coffee. It's how, what, what I listen to when I'm making eggs, like the, uh, the opportunity to sink my emotions and my fears and my care, my curiosity, my anxieties into this extraordinary thing, which is sports, this incredible competition between extraordinary people to have that ripped out of my life is really, is really painful. And I can only imagine how painful it is for people, not only who, who love sports more than me and for people who work in sports. So we're just, we're just going through such a challenging time. And, um, and I, I don't know how it's going to affect sports in the future, but it's actually my hope that, you know, in three, four, five years from now, which seems like such a long time. And I don't, I'm not saying I think we're going to be under quarantine for that long, but five years from now, my deep hope is that we look back and we say, God, that was such a, that was such a traumatic moment for all of us. And how proud are we that we rebuilt something that was stronger across the board, um, whether it's government policy, labor policy, sports leagues, restaurants, that, that we all come out of it stronger. That's, that's just all I can hope for. Yeah, I know. It's a terribly unfair question about, you know, what is the nature of NBA finances? Nevertheless, it's just as you look around, you see people in various sectors say that this, um, this, this pandemic is going to take its pound of flesh in every sector. And as you begin to think about what that might mean for sports uh, fans and for sports owners, I don't know. I don't know where it all shakes out, but the idea that it's all going to be just put back together like Humpty Dumpty in the end, I don't know. That seems, I don't know where it seems naive, but it just seems naive to me. And I've been sort of wrestling with what the contours of that might look like. I agree. I think I, I do feel safe agreeing with you that it's naive to expect that things will be back to normal in May, June, early July. I think, frankly, I, I, you know, I, it costs me nothing to predict this. So take it for what it's worth, which is practically nothing. I think there's just no way that we have an Olympics this summer. Like, I think the odds are literally 0.0%. And so when I hear from Tokyo that they're talking about suspending the Summer Olympics, it's like suspend it until what? Suspend the Summer Olympics in Tokyo until late fall when the you know median temperature in, in Tokyo is, is you know, 40 degrees? Um, the, the Olympics just aren't happening. Um, I feel confident making that prediction, although, you know, again, I, I'm not putting any money behind it. Fair enough. Uh, well, if you would want to read more of his work, and why wouldn't you? It is all quite good. He is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Uh, and the article that we have referenced here, America's Restaurants Will Need a Miracle, but he has much more than that. It is Derek Thompson. Derek, uh, 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 we'll, part, we'll part ways on this. When is the next season of your podcast coming out? That's a great question. Uh, we were thinking about doing it for this year, although obviously there's some challenges with uh, <laughs> uh, as, several aspects of interview coordination um, right now. Honestly, um, my, my hope is that the podcast will come back uh, as things get back to normal. I think right now, one of two things is, is, is true. Either I'm just going to keep writing about coronavirus as long as it's so obviously the most important story 
uh, in the world, or we would revamp Crazy Genius to be a, a podcast about ideas and about it that uh, are in the world of technology and science that relate specifically um, to dealing with coronavirus. So one of those two things will happen, but my hope is very soon. Can't wait to see it. Uh, Derek, take good care of yourself and your family. Really appreciate the hard work, and uh, we'll see how this all shakes out. You too, man. Be well. Thanks for listening. Catch The Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at LThomasNews and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.